Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, dear listeners, today's guest is Bob Odenkirk, who is one of my absolute favorite actors to watch and one of my favorite people in general. You know him from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul as a pretty questionable lawyer. After seeing his new movie, Nobody, I guarantee you'll think of him in a totally different way. Later in the episode, I am joined by dating and relationship strategist, matchmaker, and founder of Level Connections, April Beyer. April has agreed to be my regular co-host for the advice segment of the podcast, and I am so excited to have her. As always, thank you so much for your kind words and reviews. It really means a lot to me. If you have a question and would like some unqualified and qualified advice, please look for the link at unqualified.com. Okay, here he is, Bob Odenkirk. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Bob! Hey. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you this morning. Thank you for doing this. You're full of shit. I love you. I love talking to you. Anna, you're so nice. Get out of town. I felt terrible about the last time I was on your podcast. What are you talking about? It was one of my favorites. I thought I was a waste of space, <laughs> but thank you so much. Bob, we got a chance to see nobody last night. It is so fucking great. <laughs> I found myself doing that thing. I probably haven't done this since I was a kid, where it was like maybe at least six times I was like, what? No, fuck yeah. <laughs> Really? It was so amazing. And you're incredible. And then I was reading that you had trained forever and you did all that stunt work. Holy shit, you are such a badass. Wow, that is so nice to hear. Thank you so much. Was your body like every day infused with like power? I don't know if you're the kind of actor that gets infused with a character that you're playing a little bit. I do. And weirdly, you know, look, that's your job. And when you have these sort of dramatic roles, I even imagine it happened to you with your half hour comedy that you did for so many years. You just get so close to these people. You play them all the time. You play them for hours a day. The truth is that some of the core drives of this story and of this character are things that really came from me. You know, the story idea came from me. I didn't know that, Bob. I've had two home break-ins in the last 10 years. Really? Yeah. And so I had this stuff sitting inside me and I didn't know what to do with it. And then along with many other thoughts and feelings about a career and what I could do and a story I'd like to tell or explore and challenging myself, just so many different things led me to this place to make that movie. But one of them was I genuinely felt, you know, the frustration and anger that you feel when you've had your home violated by someone. Bob, forgive me. I don't know what that feels like. I have not had that experience. 
and it shows because I'm pretty lax with security. Yeah. I have that naive sensibility that until you're scarred. Yes. I used to. Exactly. <laughs> then, you know, it dissipates, of course. And then the movie becomes very kind of grandiose and it goes into a genre place, which I also wanted to do. I did not write the movie. Derek Kolstad wrote it, who wrote all the John Wick movies. He invented the John Wick universe. So he thinks in these big, mythical, genre-friendly stories that are really fun to watch, you know? But we started with, I think, a very identifiable vibe and scenario and feeling. It's so weird, Anna, because in a weird way, at least parts of this movie are more personal to me than anything I've done. Will you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, look, my family experienced two break-ins. They were a few years apart. One was because I approached home security the way you just expressed that you do. We just left the back door unlocked. I mean, we had a lot of doors and we were at the end of a block way up in a hill. I mean, who's ever going to open that door? Right. But someone did. And they came inside and they went down in the basement. And it woke you up? No. Well, I can't really tell this story because other people in the family had experiences with this scenario that were really their story to tell. Okay. But it was damaging and upsetting. Very, very upsetting. But what I did was I woke up. We discovered there was someone there. They were in an altered state. And then I tried to just keep the damage to a minimum, which is what my character says in the movie, which I really did. I opened the doors. I got everybody out of that part of the house. I called the police. I picked up a baseball bat. In the movie, I pick up a golf club because what does every dad do? They've got a baseball bat. They've got a golf club. But what are you going to do with it? You've never practiced hitting a person with a baseball bat in a small space. I mean, look, I opened the doors. I invited the person to leave. The police arrived. They called more police. The person was in a very, like I say, an altered state. They were dangerous. And eventually they got them out. More happened than that, but that's all I can talk about. But what happened was, you know, you just go away from that. You ask the police, did I do the right thing? They say, yeah, nobody got hurt. You didn't get into a fight. It's not true that nobody got hurt, but nobody got physically hurt. And yet it doesn't feel like you did the right thing. It doesn't feel like I did the right thing. Is there just that needling inside of you? Yeah, there's just a feeling like uh, it just doesn't feel right. And I know it is right, but it doesn't sit right with me that this person did this and then they just get escorted out a few hours later and then that's it. We're all left with the burden of what happened and how it affected us. Anyways, I married that feeling that I genuinely had up with the notion I had read a book highly recommended in the New York Times book review called The Dark Art. It's a great book by an ex-DEA agent full of adventures. So many adventures that you go like, this can't be real. This guy's just making stuff up. But it's really fun. The dark art. And I had just read it. And I had thought, okay, so I'm me, a guy who isn't violent and has never learned any fighting techniques. Now I've learned screen fighting. Not quite the same thing as real fighting. <laughs> Quantum difference, I'd say. But this book, I thought, what if you were a person who had this background? What if you had a background? Now you do what I did and you hold it in and you don't react and you don't respond. Now, how do you feel? You probably feel like 50 times worse because you could have done something. You really could have wreaked some vengeance. Right. But if you were a person with that experience, I don't think you could have held yourself back. 
The point is, what if you take a character and you take this experience that I had, and then you add in, inject in this dimension of he had been a violent person and he's got to keep his violent abilities, tendencies under control. And it's even harder than any other person, man or woman, I would say. What would happen when that guy exploded? And that's the story we told. Right. And you see my character goes too far in this movie. He can't stop himself. Sure does. He goes too far. (laughs) Seems to really enjoy his abilities. Well, yes. I'm not quite sure how many guys you took down in the movie. I don't know either, but I do know that we had to have them wear black masks so that we could double them, so that we could have them come back and I could kill them again. I loved it, by the way. It was a great feeling. And if you want to know, did it make you feel good? And kind of like, did you get that off your chest, those feelings? Yeah. My answer is yes. Now that's weird, right? Because if you've ever played like a violent video game, I always wonder like, after you're done, do you feel like, oh, I got that out of me. Well, I feel great. My mind is clear. No, you don't. You know what's been great is I've gotten to think about this subject matter, protecting your home, fighting, interacting with somebody in a confrontational way physically because of all this training and talk and practice I've done. And what I've learned from the pros is get the hell out of the house. (laughs) They all say like, first things first, if you can leave, leave, just leave, just walk away from violence. Yeah. And these are the most violent guys. Some of these guys train like Navy SEALs and they'll all tell you, Number one, walk away, get away. If you can't do that, then you use these skills or whatever. But the first choice, and it's weird because these people who train me are the best, some of the best in the world, and they're powerful people and have incredible skills. And they all say, number one, leave the bad situation. So they're essentially saying like the healing balm of kicking this guy's ass for invading your sense of security will not be enough. It's not worth. It's not worth. Yes. So I was just saying that I did feel a great release from acting it out. But I think in real life, you know, obviously real violence leaves incredible scars on everyone and it doesn't clean the slate. So look, that was actually one of the things, Anna, in going into this project, all these things I wanted to explore. And you know how movies are. The chances of this thing getting made were so small. I'm so (laughs) glad it did. You know, I thought, I don't know, I'll try, I'll train, I'll learn about this stuff. And in the end, if it doesn't get made, well, I'll have explored this part of myself and the world that I had not done up to this point. When your real life break-ins happen, I think those moments, they test something in you that rarely gets tested, which is, I guess, the ability to think rationally and clearly when your heart is racing. And it sounds like you were able to do that with your break-ins. Yes, pretty much I handled it right. But the one thing that's different now after training and thinking about it and learning a lot of things And again, I trained for screen fighting, not real fighting. It's built out of real fighting, but it's not remotely the same because you don't actually hit anyone and you don't get hit if you do it right. I feel like I just wanted to think about violence and act it out and do it in this safe, imaginary place that movies are. I envy your role as Hutch and you're wonderful in it. I found myself thinking a lot about the house bunny watching it yes, because that was a feeling kind of through a degree of sort of that kind of candy-esque sexuality that I had in that movie. It's not the same sexual power, but when you're acting and you're the lead of a movie and all the other characters are treating you as though you have that power, 
there is something that, of course, is delicious in that experience. Yes, I know what you mean. In other words, you're playing a heightened character. That has power. Yes. And you can see how young people who get roles like that, it really goes to their head. And they think, I'm going to carry on living in this role, this conceptualized human that I got to play. It's a good, strong feeling. And people accept me in this role. I mean, I hope that this movie works, obviously, for people who like action movies. Do you like action movies generally? Well, yes. Like Taken, Bourne films? I love them both. But I love you. You're a fascinating person and actor. And you have something fundamental about you that people root for you. It's that indelible thing. But anyway, I do. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope that this movie works for those people first. Because, you know, I did feel like I was stepping into somebody else's territory with this. And I tried to do it in a respectful way. I'm surrounded by people who this is all they do. I mean, Derek, the writer, we've worked on a number of other projects since then, and I've even seen some of the other things he's written. This is all he does. He just loves action, myth, gods and monsters and fighting. And Ilya Nyshuler, who directed it, is like a Russian director who made a film called Hardcore Henry, which is this first person fighting movie feature film where you go through the movie. Well, the lens is the person, is the lead. It's incredible and bloody and intense and amazing. And he's just a great guy. And then David Leach, who produced it, and Kelly McCormick, who produced it, they make Atomic Blonde, Deadpool, John Wick. What's great is that once the flip is switched inside of Hutch, your character, as an audience, there's a satisfying wave in knowing that we don't doubt your ability at all. Because once that shift is made in you, we don't know what your fate will be, but we know in the best of ways that there's going to be a lot of blood. But Anna, <laughs> can I point something out to you? This is from training. This is from three years ago when we were first starting. And I said, the first thing I want to happen to me when I fight is that I get hurt, that I hit my head on something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You probably don't remember. You only watched it once. But in the bus fight, the first thing that happens is I get hit and then I hit my head on a bar <laughs> on the bus. And that was like all planned, you know, because I feel like so many of the action heroes of the last 15 years. Some of them are almost robots yeah. who fight. And Damon is a great actor, but his character is almost like taken over. Like he doesn't even know what he's doing and he's like perfect killer. Yeah. I understand what you're saying, that you are still fallible. I get hurt. It really hurts. And, you know, I struggled with how much to play, how hurt I am, because you still want him to be the hero of the movie and you want him to carry on. According to the script, he keeps fighting, <laughs> you know. But so often in these movies, the guy gets hit 50 times and he's unscratched and he's totally fine. He's not even out of breath. I actually think I overdid it now that I've seen it. Oh, really? Yeah, I do. I mean, you felt good about it. I don't want to put a damper on it for anybody, but I'm very aware now how it's a movie. Just let him be a hero. Yeah. But yeah. I really wanted to play the pain of these altercations. Yeah. He really limps along because he got stabbed, let's say. No, I think that's important. Good. I think the pain level on your face was perfect amount of emotion. Yeah. But I wanted to ask which scenes you were really feeling the next day in terms of body pain. And I was thinking about when you punch the wall, because we have a great shot of your fist coming like directly into camera. 
you obviously have to have force yeah. and have something to impact. So what was that? <laughs> I did not hurt myself punching the wall. Did you have a foam thing? Yes, it was foam and it was replaced in post with a bricky looking wall. You know, what I got hurt on was the bus fight. I didn't get hurt badly. And in fact, the training was to be able to do my own fighting because, you know, a lot of action sequences in films, you see the actual actor isn't doing it. But I wanted to do all my own fighting, which I did. And I wanted to not get hurt when I did it. I also have the stamina to shoot a scene because, you know, it takes all night long to shoot a night scene. And I really did great. I didn't get hurt badly. I just cut my hands up because, you know, you train at a gym and you have like cardboard boxes around you. So if you hit anything, you just hit a cardboard box. But then you get in a real bus and it's made of metal. And if you swing your arms too wildly or get pushed or slip, you hit metal. That's the only way I got hurt was a couple cuts and bruises. And thank you for being so complimentary on the movie. It was a big choice for me, and I'm thankful I got a chance to see it through. And I'm really happy that it seems to be satisfying people who like action movies. Oh, my God. Bob, it's so great. It's perfect for right now. It's weird how it's perfect for right now. Why is that? Yeah, it is. I know what you mean. It's like, why do we need this? We all need a release. It is so overt in its aggression. Yeah. And the violence borders on ridiculous just amounts of it, which is rad. Yeah, I don't know, but it feels like we need this right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I was going to ask you a few things, if you don't mind. Have you learned anything about yourself during quarantine that surprised you? You know, we get a lot of attention as actors, and we get to do all these wonderful social things that I really do enjoy. You know, the parties before the awards shows, rap parties and starting parties. And when you get wrapped up in that, and you get to be the star of a show or a movie or a couple of projects over time. You kind of think, boy, I do like this stuff. Sometimes we take it for granted. But do I need this? I know it's easy to say, oh, not another damn party I got to go to. You know, but does my ego need this? And I think that quarantine has shown me that I don't need it. (laughs) That's a good feeling. Like, look, we have done without all that stuff. Yeah. And it's okay. I feel great. My ego doesn't feel hurt or needy or hungry. I'm going to say something really intimate. My fiance, Michael, he's asked me if I missed when I was married to Chris, Mm -hmm. if I miss all that stuff, that whole like being this power couple and going to those events. And I've tried to examine this very honestly. I don't. Those were wonderful highs. A bunch of fascinating, dynamic people that are gorgeous in a room. And there's that feeling of sort of euphoria. And do I fit in? And I have no idea. And this is surreal. Right. But I'm a pretty intimate and sometimes socially awkward person. And so I've enjoyed this experience. And I don't want to ever need those things because, of course, they disappear. Right. So you feel the same thing. You feel okay. Yeah. Because you do wonder. You feel infringed upon and it feels unnecessary. And yet part of you goes, maybe I'm addicted to this. Maybe if this went away, I'd be scared and I'd need it back. Because we all know people who do. You know, you can see it. I always wonder if I ever get nominated for something, if that will be a catnip to me. Right. But I'm lucky. I never have. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> You're lucky. I'm not emotionally invested. And that's a great thing to learn. <laughs> and I think that quarantine has taught me that it's true. I'm okay without the attention and the feeling of power or being important. It's okay. I can just wake up like anybody and occupy myself and feel good about my family, you know, and helping out and being a part of that. And that's a great thing to feel like I'm okay with because we all know people who will do anything to not let it slip away. Yeah. I also look forward to it coming back. I really enjoy those big showbiz parties that we get to have around awards shows because you get to see friends from all different places, writers and directors and actors. I love that. I feel like I'm usually in four-inch heels. No. The heel thing, men don't quite understand. Yes, that ruins your night. <laughs> you know, you just imagine being in like a level four of pain the entire evening. Yes. Okay, Bob, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? For a long time, I would have said Ireland, but I'm going to say right here in this house that I'm in, in Los Angeles. I love it that you said Ireland. I talk about you all the time on the podcast in reference to Ireland, because you said when you were on the podcast that when you were in Ireland, it was a feeling of home yeah. that washed over you as soon as you were there. And I think about that all the time in our industry of like that quest for that feeling. Right. Because LA doesn't provide it. Maybe your home does though, Bob. This house is so great. And I think we left the house that I talked about, the break-in that we had, we left that house and came here. And this house has such a great energy to it. You know, for a big part of my life, I just didn't want to believe in anything like, oh, you should live in a part of the world that fits you better. They're all just places, right? What does it matter? But it does matter. I mean, you can find a house that really fits how you feel and makes you feel good about your life. And you can find a place, maybe a country you should live in. I do believe there's places that have the right energy. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Bob, do you have any libertarian sensibilities? Libertarian. I don't know if I'm real good at the delineations between these different uh, political point of views. I'm not sure I am either. But libertarian seems to me something that almost every American would relate to. 
kind of like a degree of freedom that few governments would really encourage. It's almost like a lack of government, <laughs> but a trust in each other. So I, I probably do have some feelings, but I consider it kind of idyllic, which is to say it's an impossible ideal. Yeah. In the end, we have to live with each other in communities. We need all these rules and structures I guess I feel like instead of saying I want less government, just pursue the right kind of government <laughs> because we have to have it. We can't live without it. We can't live in big communities without conversation, understanding, rules, interaction, changing rules, changing them again, changing them again. It's not going to just go away. That's part of life. And we have to talk about it and keep refining it. Yeah. Bob, what intimidates you? I was thinking the other day doing accents. Oh, yeah. I did an accent in Fargo, and I watched a lot of it on YouTube. And one of the things I realized watching the accent done by people who live in that region was that even for them, it came and went. Oh, interesting. Right? So I was like watching to see if they sort of live in this corner where they only can speak with this strong accent. And I found that they kind of came and went. It got lighter and heavier. And I thought, well, that's probably more true to people in the modern world. Yeah. I knew some guys in Chicago who had that real strong, you know, the Bears accent that Smigel and I wrote that scene for SNL. I didn't know that. Yeah. And they actually really did talk like that all the time. That was weird. <laughs> I mean, when people have a really pure accent that's really intense, that's rare, actually, in the modern world, I think. Anyway, what intimidates me? Heights. I'm not good with heights. <laughs> Do you have irrational fears? Like flying? I guess it's not irrational, but sort of. I try not to have irrational fears or feelings about things. I try to be really rational, like Spock. I agree. And don't you think the acting world can be sort of rife with superstition? And I don't like the idea of other things having control over my destiny, except for me. Do you ever have like a fear and then you just say, I don't care? All the time. I'm going to ignore this strong feeling. I'm just ignoring it. I don't care. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to, right? In other words, you have the feeling. Right. And it's strong. Yeah. But you just literally compartmentalize it and go, I'm not honoring that. I don't care. We can't do that in our profession because we have to step up to the plate when the cameras are rolling. Right. We have to work really hard at actually suppressing that specific urge so our fear doesn't swallow us in any way. Don't you think? Yes. You have to be able to compartmentalize and put things aside. But I guess if you do too much of that, you could get all twisted up. It's a hard thing to balance. That's why we need podcasts and therapy. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Bob. What is your relationship with fame? Let's talk about fame. You start in this thing, you're an actor or whatever, and you get interviewed and stuff, and sometimes even paparazzi come and talk to you. You're trying to find your place, right, in the grand scheme of things, like what kind of celebrity am I? And I'm not a celebrity. I am a working actor. I am a guy who, as his job, appears in a public space. That's how his job is done. And that's it. And that's super cool. That works perfectly for me. It's great to not feel like I have a responsibility to entertain any place outside of the projects that I'm doing, as is witnessed by my appearance on your podcast. Bob, I really <laughs> appreciate- You're so nice. No, I, I so appreciate that philosophy because I struggle with public appearance, like, you know, going on a late night talk show. 
I'm better at it now as I get older. Yes, because you wonder, who am I to people? Who do I need to be? What do I owe them? I want to show up for what I'm signed up for. If people are saying, we like you, your personality and how you live in the world, like you could say the Kardashians, which is fine. I'm not saying that's stupid or anything. I'm saying that's how people want to understand them and know them. And that's the exchange between them and the world. And then you go, where do I fit in that world? And you realize, you know, after working it out in years, and it's great, I don't owe people anything except my best work when I'm doing my work, which is acting or writing, and that's it. And then they don't want anything else from me either. They're okay with it. It all works out. We find our place in that scheme. We're watching The Sopranos because my fiance has never seen it. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's really fun to rewatch it. But thinking about that time and the comparison with Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Yeah. Thinking about how those actors. Yeah. I mean, people thought of them as mobsters. Yeah. And that was very much their identity with how they went out into the world. I imagine like. You have walks of all kinds treating you a very specific way. I think that happens with action stars. I mean, Jason Statham, people think, is going to start fighting as he walks down the street. <laughs> but with Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, I guess it's slightly different because the world is newer in terms of, you know, the Southwest meth industry as yeah. opposed to Jersey, New York gangster, yeah. which has been very much mythologized in our imagination. A part of our life, yeah. Maybe it's like sex in the city, but maybe you are the exception. I mean, people do not treat you as though you're a lawyer. Well, actually, no. Some people say, I'm a lawyer. You got to come speak to my group. They'd love to talk to you. And I'm like, what? I don't know anything about what you do. I just pretend <laughs> I don't know anything. Yeah, mostly I've been very lucky. Partly I'm lucky because I'm not that famous. Like when somebody does something that burns itself into everyone's brain so deeply that they then have to be that person for the rest of their lives, they're just that person in public, that's how everyone sees them. And I've been lucky to do some really cool shit that's been famous enough to succeed, to make people happy and the business end and every side of it. But not so much that it's just deeply embedded and I don't have room to move and be whoever I want to be. Yeah. Okay. What is a dream that you've let go of? Well, I wanted to be a baseball player when I was a little kid. I gave up on that around 13 because I wasn't good enough. <laughs> the dream was to live in Ireland, too, when I was younger. I had liked it so much, I thought I should just move here. And of course, I didn't live my life there. I could still move there, but I wouldn't live my whole life there. Sure. Do you believe in ghosts or aliens? I do not believe in ghosts. I do not believe in aliens. However, here's the thing. Maybe there's aliens. And if there are, they obviously don't care enough about us to talk to us or interact with us in a very forthright manner. So maybe they're floating around watching us. Okay, hi. I hope you're enjoying the show. They're not interacting with us. If they want to interact with us, then they'll make themselves known and we can talk to them. And that'll be interesting, but it just has no bearing on my life at all. Maybe they're so advanced, you know, they view us as... Like ants on an anthill running around. Yeah, and so there's no need to communicate. Sure, in which case, what does it matter that they're there? They're just like a tree. <laughs> does a tree watch you and have opinions? Fine. If they're not going to talk to us, I can't help them. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know what they want. Yeah. If they want to float around and watch us and be weird and escape when our Air Force jets come near them, have fun. Keep doing it. Go nuts. (laughs) It just doesn't mean anything until they want to have a relationship. Bob, this is much more of a critique of believers, I think, than aliens. It is. It is. (laughs) What is your relationship like with social media? I don't have it all figured out yet. I'm like everybody. We're still figuring this thing out. But to a great extent, I wouldn't say I never read the comments, but I mostly don't read the comments on my Twitter because I don't think it should be a two-way street. I look at my interaction in that level as a stage. It's a stage, right? So I go up and you do your stand-up or you do your show. You don't then go to every person in the audience after every line that you say and go, what do you think of it? What do you want me to change? Did you like it? Do you feel differently about it? You say, here's what I'm thinking. And that was my show. And if you don't like it, maybe you don't want to see me next time or didn't like that performance. There's another one coming tomorrow. It's just not a healthy place for real interaction. Yeah. It's just a stage that you present yourself on. And one other thing, when you're on Twitter, you are at a wedding. This is to say that the person sitting next to you might be the bride's uncle, who is a sweet guy who's 70 years old and doesn't need to hear swear words or angry comments and won't understand the context of what you say. And so whenever you tweet something, the world we came from, and I'm older than you, when you did a show at a stand-up club, you could see the audience and they had come to that club that night and they were seeing this group of comics and they saw everything you did in your act up till that lewd or rude comment that you said and everything after it. And when you sit at a wedding, you can't be that same person. You have to be sensitive to the strangers and the people who are there who didn't come for your show. (laughs) Right. There's a lot of risk, you know, at a high cost of when you don't take into consideration the vast audience. Like, you're right, at a wedding. Yeah. Ease up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This thing that comics are doing where they take everyone's phone and put it in a zip bag. Yeah. That's the right thing to do because that's how that should be experienced. Yeah. It was never meant to be recorded and edited and sent out. It was meant to be a live experience that this group of people is going to see in this moment, beginning to end. I like the control of context. You're right. That's it. Control of context. Yeah. All right. What was your first boss like? I don't really remember my first boss. It was McDonald's. I worked at McDonald's. I was sitting at the dinner table and I was complaining about money or something. I don't know why. And I thought, what am I complaining about? I'm 16. And I left the table, borrowed my mom's car, went to McDonald's, filled out a form and got a job. What did you do there? Whatever they told me, you know, clean up. I only was there for about three months. I don't think I made it to the grill. All right. So you didn't get to talk to customers or anything? I suppose I talked to customers because I cleaned up out in the restaurant. And then I went to Kmart. I worked at Kmart, which was a better job because no grease. What'd you do at Kmart? I worked in the auto department. It was great. Oh, that's fun. I loved it. First of all, you have all the radios. You have the wall of car stereos. So you can tune that to anything you want and play it all day. So I was playing the knack, (laughs) the cars, cheap trick. Were you a well-liked student? Were you popular? I had friends of all different groups. I had friends who were jocks, friends who were stoners, and my closest friends were nerds. So yes, I would say I was fairly well-liked if I was noticed. 
I was a class clown, not the loudest one you ever heard, but I was allowed a certain amount of freedom from my teachers to goof around, frankly. And I think I got good grades. Maybe they even thought some of my comedy was kind of funny. I had a great deal of freedom. And I've talked about this before, but Anna, I went to college when I was 16. So I didn't really spend that much time in high school. And then, forgive me, Bob, where did you go to school? I went to four different colleges. College of DuPage, Marquette University, Southern Illinois University. I took one final class at Columbia College in Chicago, and I got my degree from Southern Illinois University. Why did you keep switching? Well, because the first one was just a local college. I was 16 years old, and I thought I'd be awkward if I went away to college. I'd be too young. And the second one was Marquette, which was great, and the teachers were great, but I felt like the sort of student experience wasn't as rewarding. There wasn't as much fun, inventive stuff happening. And Southern was a really great place for me. I did a show on the radio. I didn't have to work too hard to get good grades. Gave me a lot of free time to read books and write comedy and just find who I was, you know, and have fun. I have not spent a significant amount of time at all in the Midwest. What kind of things, when you think about the Midwest, define it for you? Well, I spent all my life in Illinois till I was 25 years old, and I moved to New York for Saturday Night Live. That's amazing. Where are you from? I was born in Baltimore, but grew up from six through college north of Seattle, and I went to University of Washington. Oh, cool. And then I moved to Los Angeles in 1999. Oh, man. Very cool. Well, it suggests that, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but that was very distant for me. You weren't interacting or crossing paths with the epicenter of culture? My parents were determined, I think, to keep me a kid for as long as possible. I was young for my grade. I wore headgear, like all kinds of painful things. But I was involved in the Seattle theater community. So that was how I developed my love of acting. And for better or for worse, that school and my peers felt like the chores, you know, that I had to do. My community felt much more with the older adult actors that I would do plays with, Mm -hmm. their bitterness I loved. But it was an interesting time. I graduated high school in 1994, so it truly was right at the emergence of a lot of exciting things coming out of the region. So you weren't a part of that stuff? I would have loved to have been if I had been more popular. I went to some great concerts later on. What? I like Stone Temple Pilots. I went to a great Pearl Jam concert. Yeah, yeah. Rage Against the Machine. That wasn't as grungy, but... Right, right. Did you ever see the Ben Stiller show sketch we did about grunge? No, I gotta see this. Oh, it's great. It's called The Grungies. All right. Check it out. I have to. Jeff Kahn and I wrote it. Okay. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Now that you've done a show, you did Mom. Yeah. What do you think about that experience? And now what do you want to do next? What does that make you think about as a performer? Oh, that's a really nice question, Bob. Well, not many people have had the experience you've had. I just wonder where your head's at after being the star of that show. And you know, I liked it so much. I do like it. It was a uniquely great show. I learned so much, and I think it made me a stronger performer in some ways because the confidence, I think, of being at the helm of a show. Mm -hmm. I always felt like multicam. There's nowhere to hide, if that makes any sense. And you don't realize it until you do multicam that there are places in single camera format all over the place where you can hide. It's a hard thing, I think, to put into a tangible sort of example. 
Would you say there's a feeling of more control in single camera? Yes. Like you have control. And when you go into that close-up right. and the smallest thing you do matters, yes. now you can modulate and you can really, in a sensitive way, play the moment. Completely. Find the truth of the moment. You're just controlling that emotion and how much of it comes out and how it comes out. I think staying active, always in the scene, yeah. is an interesting idea in multicam because sometimes if you don't have a line, I mean, of course they won't be on you necessarily. But anyway, I learned of the technicality and I loved being truly just active all the time as you know because you only shoot for two days that you're rehearsing so you're not waiting in your dressing room for anything I loved that element right we were constantly solving the puzzle I loved working through the rehearsal process more than other actors maybe I just like to act. Mm -hmm. But I used to have stronger ideas about your question. You know, in my 20s, I couldn't believe that I fell into comedy because I had never done anything comedic. Mm -hmm. It was hard for me to get auditions for anything dramatic. And this idea was confusing to me. I fought internally for a long time at sort of the narrow-mindedness of our industry, which eventually you just kind of, that's just too long of a battle. Yeah. But I think right now I'm attempting to let myself view this time as a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. I still have that lingering 20 years built up of being anxious about my next job or thinking about that thing right. because I have spent 20 years doing that. Like we all have. Yes, I want to give myself this luxury a bit. Good, smart. Of course, like all actors, I only want to play projects that I feel that's a shoe that fits. Right. When you read a certain script and you know exactly on the page how you want to craft that line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can give myself a little bit of time now with that. Before it felt like I'm going to go do Yogi Bear so I can pay the mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> But I wish I had, like, I want to play this. Yeah. I've always had that. Well, you know, this movie, like I said, it came from a lot of places. And one of them was I became aware that Better Call Saul played around the world. You know, they watch it everywhere. My brother-in-law sent me a screen grab of Better Call Saul advertisement in China. And I thought, Jesus, they're watching Saul in China. I'd met Russians who knew the show and Italians. And I thought, well, okay, what is my character? And I just really kind of dissembled who the character was that they've come to know through that show. He's like a striving guy. He wants something. He often fails at what he wants. And then he keeps going at it. He never gives up. He kind of has this indefatigable kind of forward momentum. And I thought, that's an action hero, except that I don't fight. You're with me. You're on my side. Even when I'm doing kind of nasty things, you still want me to succeed. My heart is on the line, which is a really great thing that Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould and all the writers created, that he's really got his sense of self and his heart on the line in a way that you can have sympathy for. And I thought, that's an action lead. Of course, I did think people would just laugh at the idea. But I said, I'm willing to train. And if we base a character in those same feelings. So it was really about dissembling what people knew me as, taking it apart and asking how else could they be reconstructed? Where else could they go? And that you would see me and immediately feel the right feelings in that role. Anyway, I'm not sure it's true, my theory, but it was true enough to get me to this point. 
So I've been racking my brain to think of a show that is tighter from the pilot through the series finale than Breaking Bad. Yeah. There's a very satisfying sense of premeditation in the creation. Yes. In Better Call Saul, same thing. I cannot think of a series that is less episodic. Yeah, it's incredible. Look, these scripts and these two shows you're commenting on are written like novels. They're researched. The world is invented in a very closely observed way. So I'm reading the scripts for our season six, which will be our final season. And I'm heading off to do that in a few days. Oh, Bob, I was really hoping you were going to tell us that it was going to be airing soon. Well, this is the thing. What you're appreciating about the show is one of the reasons it takes so long to write. Of course. When you read a script, it's been gone over so much and every detail is put in place Lately, I've been surprised and thrilled at the amount of rediscovery that I'm seeing in season six. So here I am reading season six, and I'm finding pieces of characters and people and things from season one and two that I'd forgotten about. Like, how do they remember this stuff? They must sit down and watch everything they've done over and over. I've been to the writer's offices and I've seen the walls with the cards on them. And they have walls where they have every character who appeared in Breaking Bad and a little comment about them, maybe their age, where they are in the timeline. It's a group of writers, mostly female, actually, in a room, and they just devote their lives to it for so long. And we are very lucky because Sony and AMC give us this indulgence any other show would be told, let's start shooting. Bob, we are so lucky as consumers, as an audience. They're both such brilliant shows. It's just the work. It's just the hard and intense hours and months of work. Believe me, they are in those rooms every day, all day, not doing anything else, not writing any other shows. None of them do any other anything. And they do it for every day of the year. And then you get these scripts and, oh, I isolated a line that's so specific because it was so crazy. It was like, this is like novel writing. You don't see this in any script. They'll write for the character, you know, Jimmy hesitates. His face says he's listening, but in his mind, he's feeling bad about what he's not saying. (laughs) They'll write that in. I love that. That kind of subtext. Now, the rule on writing scripts is don't tell the actor what to play. Right. But I love this stuff. I'm great with it. I don't feel like my rights are infringed upon. I'm glad you're telling me that I'm thinking what I'm thinking about, what feelings are going through my head and what I'm not saying but want to say. I love it. Me too. I want to serve the writer, hopefully in an interesting way. Yeah. So I'm just very lucky, Anna. And the thing you're appreciating about the show is those guys, and they get called geniuses. And I always think that's a way to just say, well, they're special. They don't work that hard. (laughs) They're just lucky to be so talented. The truth is they just work really hard. They also may be geniuses, but they sweat every word, every second, every non-dialogue moment. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. And then they do these tone meetings for every episode that can go for two whole days, two whole days. Really? They take every single scene, all the producers, all the costume people, the set people, the prop people, the locations people, the director, of course, the AD for that episode. 
and they read every line and they go, here's what we're going for here. Here's what she should be wearing. They talk about the lighting. They talk about the cars in the background. It's unbelievable. It's just brain sweat. Man, but how? You can't believe it. Well, because the show is so good, they have to encourage the process. I can't believe that they let us do it. One of the things that hampers excellence in television is bulk buying is just, come on, give us lots of episodes fast. And how good can you be when you have to just put it out in such quantity? When you can't be meticulous. Yeah, but we are. And I'm glad you appreciate it. I'm glad people appreciate it. And thank you again for the nice words about the movie. I know I keep saying it, but you know how you feel before a movie comes out. Oh, my God. (laughs) It really surprised me, actually, how it exhilarated me. (laughs) Hey, Bob, do you have a favorite joke? Yes. How many strings does a banjo have? I'm not sure. Five too many. (laughs) It's mean. (laughs) That's one reason I like it. (laughs) Hey, Bob, truly thank you and congratulations. I was looking forward to this and you are just the best. You made my day. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye, Bob. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey everyone, April Beyer is back, now officially as my much-needed co-host. As you know from previous episodes, April brings great advice, insight, and years of experience. I am so thrilled to have her. Hi, hello! Hi, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Uh, We're great, we're so excited to talk to you. Do you know April? from the podcast. Hi. Hi, Michelle. April's incredible. And I loved your letter, but will you tell our listeners what is the situation? So I have this guy friend. We met about 10 years ago in college. We got along really well, just right off the bat. We always, I think, had a crush on each other a little bit, but he was dating somebody and then I was dating somebody just not really worked out. But we were always really close. We would talk to each other about our life problems and just that kind of a relationship. Didn't talk all that much after college. And then about four years ago, I just kind of up and moved to Austin. And I didn't find out until I got here that he was actually here as well. So we just kind of reconnected and um, immediately started hanging out all the time. And we just kind of became even closer than we were before. We were just that kind of friends that we talked to each other about everything. You know, we stay up to four o'clock in the morning and just shoot the shit about life and all that. And I was always kind of curious if anything would happen. You know, now that we were older and things were different, whatever. But after he, you know, never really made a move. I just kind of wrote it off and and let it go. And then 
he eventually moved and and we've still been staying in touch, you know, even though he's moved to a different state. And we still see each other once a year when we are home for the holidays. So last Christmas, we saw each other and uh, we went out to the bar, we drank, shot the shit, ended up staying up until like 4.30 in the morning, just in the car chatting, and then ended up deciding to just crash in a nearby hotel instead of going home. And there you go. 10 years later, he just decided to make a move out of nowhere. And I swear I'm still shocked. So um, that happened. We talked about it and he kind of owned up to always wanting to do that. And it blew my mind. So now uh, we're back in our States and I can't stop thinking about it. And I have no idea what the heck to do. So wait a minute. After you finally were intimate in whatever way, you talked it out, yeah, but didn't draw any conclusion. It was like, whoa, that was crazy. And what does this mean? Can we still be friends? That kind of talk. Well, he basically just said, so what do you think? Did I just fuck everything up? <laughs> I was like, no, man, like, of course not. I think we'll live. And, and he just kind of went right into how it had been a long time coming and how he always wanted to do that, but didn't want to risk our friendship. And I mean, honestly, we really are so close that neither of us would do anything to screw this up ever. So I don't know. I have no idea what possessed him to do that. Came out of nowhere. Genuinely never thought for the rest of our lives that that would ever happen. I just wrote it off a long time ago. We talked about it and I was like, yeah, I mean, obviously I had a crush on you in college too, you know, and then in Austin, whatever. And we haven't talked about it since. How long ago was that, Michelle? That was Christmas. So December, end of December. Okay. So not that long ago. Right. And when he said, did I just screw it up? Did you really say it's fine? Or did you tell him what you really, truly felt? (laughs) Well, I kind of do think it's fine. At the time, I had no idea how I felt about it. It took me so by surprise. It genuinely took me weeks to really process it and not just be shocked. And that's it. But yeah, I did. I just was like, no, of course, it's fine. This has always been there a little bit. You know, we always knew it, but we never talked about it. But what did you want it to be? Like when it happened, how was it? It was great. I was really just in a state of shock. But at the same time, I was happy it was happening. That had always kind of been there in the very back of my brain. Oh, God. (laughs) It was great. It was great. We met up a couple nights later and redid the whole thing. And we talked about it a little bit more then. You know, he's just very blunt. You know, he wants to talk about everything and really dig in deep. So except for your relationship. I know. <laughs> what the heck? I mean, the two people that talk about literally everything, we never talk about this ever for t- like 10 years. And it's just insane. I really hope that he is so crazy about you and terrified that you don't like him back. But I also am worried because you did write something. I think you wrote that he dates a bit and doesn't love commitment. I also worry, is he not into having a relationship in general? No, he's actually quite the opposite. He's kind of a unicorn in that he is like down to get married and have have kids, you know, start a family. He's like ready for that next next step of his life. And I think that that's why he does continue to date these women that he's not even very into. Just as his friend, I know him well enough. You know, I've told over and over again, like, I'm here for you, man, but like, you're doing it again. (laughs) But he's just trying to kind of force that connection with and it's so infuriating it's like he's he just doesn't put a whole lot of effort into choosing the person to be in a relationship with is he your age michelle is he around 29 Mm -hmm. okay 
April, what do you think about this? I feel like he could be talking that talk of like, oh, I got to get my shit together. I do want to have a family. I do want to settle down or whatever. Because that's usually around like 29, entering your 30s, like people start to put the societal pressure on themselves. Yeah. I mean, he just tends to date these girls and he goes through the motions. And then after about a year or so, the inevitable happens and he'll break up with them just because of what we've known all along, which is that he's just not that into them. And I just watch him do it over and over and over again. He's not a risk taker. These girls come to him. You know, these girls are very attracted to him and they're pursuing him. And he just kind of snatches them up. And so he's like a little passive in his own love life. Oh, yeah. And he just finds reasons to convince himself that this is the right person for him, even though it is not. Yeah, that's the inability of him being able to choose. So, you know, when I read your letter and hearing your story, (laughs) I'm kind of like I'm half excited for you because this sounds like it could be so good. And then the other half is like, wait a minute. First, I want to tell you this. When you're really ready for commitment. So he says he's speaking the words. I've got to do this. And I really want marriage and family. But she did call him a unicorn. And (laughs) unicorns are not great marital partners. (laughs) So we don't want the unicorn. We want the stable rock. We want the real thing, not the magical thing. Isn't she wise? (laughs) Tell me everything. Literally, just all of it. I wish I had known April when I was 17. (laughs) Me too, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm here now. (laughs) So here's the thing. When we get to that stage of real, true readiness, we actually date less people. We don't try to work things out. We don't let things go six, 12, two years. Like we don't do that because we're so ready. And so our ability to decide and choose is actually truncated. So when you're ready, you could meet somebody and after three dates go, hmm, I already see that this person isn't right for me, isn't going to serve me long-term, so I'm going to exit. The fact that he dates women and a year later, you find out what you've quote-unquote already knew, that doesn't tell me that he's trying to make things work because he's ready. It tells me that he's trying to make things work because he isn't ready. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think that he's convinced himself that this is what he wants and he's kind of forcing it upon himself. But Are you anything like the women he's dating? When you hear the stories, you have this advantage of being his best friend or one of his closest. Are you anything like these women? No. And you know what? None of these women that he's dating are like each other either. He just goes from like one extreme to the next extreme. Just kind of, I have no idea what he's doing. Okay. When you're confused, Michelle, guaranteed they're confused every single time. That's very telling that he goes from one to the other, the fact that you're not like these women, you actually have this advantage point of knowing who these people are. And then you've become sort of teacher role. You've become buddy. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. (laughs) You're both missing out on a lot of vulnerability here and an opportunity for both of you to do that deeper dive Mm -hmm. when it happened. Oh yeah. We just avoided for sure. (laughs) You both did. Yeah, absolutely. Michelle, I would have done the same thing. It's too, I'm such a physically vulnerable person. I think that like that kind of intimacy, it doesn't open me up for conversation. This is just a crazy thing. It's just not something I ever expected to happen. And now I'm just kind of thrown 
because he's so lazy, for lack of a better word, when it comes to finding people to be with, I really just don't want to be the one to kind of address this. I just wish that he would like grow a pair and talk to me, you know, because I'll do it. I'm impulsive. It's fine. I'll do it all day. But he just he never will. When I first read your letter, Michelle, I was my gut was like, well, we should tell Michelle to call him and say, I'm in love with you. And here it is. I hope that you love me back. But his lack of being proactive, that's troubling a little bit. Yeah, (laughs) I agree too. It's just, it's frustrating. I just, you know, because I think that if I never say anything, he won't. And April said something really important, I think, which my romantic self wanted to dismiss. But she said that you guys live in different states. And I brushed that off a little bit. But that was one of the first things that you mentioned, right, April? What is the important relevance there? Well, in order to do something long distance, what I found is that two people have to be equally invested and willing to bridge the gap of that distance. It always fails if there's one person saying, we can make it happen. I will fly to you. You will fly to me. It has to be both of your concepts of how to do this and how to make it happen. And when you say, like, grow a pair, do you want somebody who doesn't have the action to make things happen? Do you want somebody who's always the chosen and not the chooser? No, it's so freaking annoying. (laughs) But it's annoying because it's not right for you. Is it possible that this is a soulmate? And you know, we're not always supposed to be with our soulmates. There's this fantasy of soulmate, like, oh, you meet that soulmate, never let them go. Soulmates aren't always your marital partner. They're not always your lifelong partner. They're people that come into our lives and there's a bond. You guys are really bonded and you guys are really connected. And you can talk about everything except for each other. And what's interesting about this, and you'll hear this when you hear this back, this recording, is that when you speak to him, I'm hearing things like, dude, buck up, like grow a pair. (laughs) I was hoping you wouldn't catch that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hearing buddy and I'm hearing like, oh, did I just mess that up? So he took the leap, right? He went from absolute platonic friendship to kissing you in the car that late, late night outside the bar. And true vulnerability would have been, wow, did I just screw up as he did, right? Because he's checking in with you. That was your moment to say, no, you didn't. This is weird for sure, but I have always, always loved you. I don't know what this is, but that was amazing. Like, let's explore. He still sees you as somebody who's going to tell him when he's right and wrong, friendship, even kind of big sister in a weird way. I'm not going to say mother. I won't go that far. (laughs) There's something about the vulnerability that's missing. And the reason why you're frustrated isn't just because you want him and it's not happening. You're frustrated because he's not ultimately the type of person to take action to build safety and trust within you so that you can be vulnerable. That's what's going on. And I'm not saying he's not your guy, but for right now, he's not offering up a lot. And maybe you're not either. Yeah, no, I'm like holding everything You're playing it so safe. I know. And by the way, you know, when two friends get together and all of a sudden there's a romantic physical action, a lot of people go, oh, we ruined this decade-long friendship. But I'm a believer in fate. And you know what? Maybe it was supposed to happen. Maybe your relationship, this friendship was always supposed to evolve. 
not necessarily into forever romance, but something was supposed to cause this little break. And so why not ride the wave? You have to go into yourself and say, what do I feel about it? Do I want him? You know, you could try it. You could say, I just want you to know that I have forever love for you and I'm invested in you as a human. So if we maintain our friendship, great. And if we venture down a romantic path, that's awesome too. But I want to try it. What do you think? You just have to speak your heart. And if you don't get anything back, that's your answer. Your frustration will decrease because then you'll really know what's going on. Michelle, would you do something like that? Would you tell him? Gosh, I really just don't know. What do you have to lose, Michelle? I mean, I don't want to make the friendship awkward. I'm not willing to lose him as my friend. We're so close. I've never really been this close to a a human before. The conversations that we've had just about life and, and everything in general. Yeah. And it's not that I don't think that he doesn't potentially feel the same way. I just don't think that he will ever really go so far as to make something of it. Our situations are different now that we're not in the same state. When we talked about it afterwards, it was a lot of, if you were still in Austin, we'd obviously have to have a conversation about what the hell that just was and you know what it means and what we want. And he agreed, but I'm just very impatient and impulsive. What if like the next time you talk to him, if you said, hey, remember when we talked about how if we lived in the same city, we would actually talk about our hookup? Would you mind if we talked about that for just a minute? <laughs> Pretend like we're in the same city. Oh, God, so stressful. I just feel like the relationship's on the line anyway, Anna. You're right. It's there. The cat's out of the bag. You're right. So what has your communication, Michelle, been like after this? We have been talking a lot more than we normally do. Or we at least did for a while. You know, it started to fade out a little bit. I think at first we were both just very curious as to what was going to happen. Or I don't know what it was, but we were talking a lot afterwards. I love it that you guys talked more frequently, but was it mostly like, oh my God, that was weird? Oh, it wasn't even about that. Life stuff. Life stuff. Because I want to believe that he's shy and awkward, but I do worry about his dating life in the other city. If that leans a little more towards somebody who doesn't really want a long-term relationship, or maybe he's a slightly passive player in his own life as well. I don't know what he does for a living. Is he really ambitious career-wise? You know, we're really different in a lot of different ways. He's a lot more practical than I am. So he's always been very, you know, by the book. He gets a promotion, so he moves, even though he loved Austin, he didn't want to leave. But he feels like he needs to go for the career, for the opportunity, for the money, things like that. And I'm kind of the opposite. If I'm happy here and I don't want to move, I'm not moving. Yeah. I think he genuinely also isn't aware that I even think this way. I mean, he blew my mind when he was saying the things that he said about always wanting to do that and just being too scared and didn't want to make a move and ruin our friendship. I mean, I had no idea. I thought that that was like a college thing that was like long, long gone. Okay, April, you're up now. This is all (laughs) you, baby. (laughs) Hit me with the book stuff. (laughs) Because I think this was a good clue what Michelle just said. So I don't think asking him what he's ready for is going to bear fruit. I think you did give us a really good clue, and I don't know if you heard it, Anna. It's this. Even if he's in love with Austin, he gets a promotion, he goes because it's practical, it's pragmatic, it's the thing to do. 
he sits back and waits for women to decide, for women to make the move. A lot of his life is dictated by what is in front of him. So I think he's warring within himself because he doesn't take a risk. This is somebody that kind of waits for opportunity to come to him, and then he does what he is kind of told. I mean, I'm getting the feeling that he's less of an entrepreneur type and more of a company man type. He's a more of a builder, like he's going to build his life slowly, right? One brick at a time. I don't think you're going to get anywhere asking him what it is that he wants. I think you have to look at the behavior, but I don't think there's any risk in telling him what you feel. My biggest question isn't him. My biggest question is you. No. <laughs> I'm still so confused how you feel and what you want because I don't know if you're not wanting to say something because of this friendship concept or because you're afraid of failing or because you're not that sure if he's somebody that you want to be with romantically. I can't tell. And so if I can't tell, trust me, he can't either. And for two people that know each other this well and that have these deep dive conversations, I am so surprised that there hasn't been that opportunity, even over the phone where it's safe, to like speak from the heart. Gosh, I mean, to be honest, it wasn't until like weeks after the fact that I was home in Austin. I had been thinking about this, you know, nonstop before I really kind of landed on how I feel about it. You know, in the moment and even in the days afterwards, I was so confused. It was crazy. I just I had no idea. And I took a long time for me to picture, could I be romantic with him? Could I be with him? Or like, are we way too far gone friendship wise for that? Not too far gone, but like too deep in the friendship to really pull yourself out and have a different kind of relationship. Michelle, okay, in your letter, you write that the hookup was wonderful. But when you just spoke about it, it sounds like it was wonderful and amazing, but it was also like, even though you're tipsy, you're probably your most hyper aware or like everything is kind of being seared into your brain and you're digesting it. Am I kissing all right or whatever? Is he what I expected? Like all of those things too. So like the next morning, well, I guess you guys didn't kiss and you talked a lot, but you didn't really say anything, it sounds like. I mean, we just talked about how it had been kind of a, a something in the back of both our minds forever. But did it go beyond that, Michelle? Did it go beyond the, I've always wanted to kiss you? Or did he say, I've always wanted to be with you? I've wanted to date you. I've wanted to be your boyfriend, but I couldn't because we had this friendship and there was distance. Like, did it go that far? Or I've always wanted to see if I could kiss you to see what would happen. I would say it's, you know, probably more the latter. There was not a whole lot of always wanted to be with you kind of conversations. Right. Because he doesn't plan his life that way. Yeah. He doesn't proactively, consciously go after things in that manner. Mm -hmm. Things happen to him. Right. Right. So what happened is without knowing it, he sparked this thing in you. And that's why you're kind of spun right now and a little confused. Like I said earlier, when you are confused, they are confused. Yeah. Because <laughs> people make it clear and men make it very clear what their intentions are. And I just want to make sure you're not doing too much of the heavy lifting because you will drive yourself crazy over this. Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of why I haven't really wanted to say anything to him is because I just, I don't want to put it all on a platter for him. I would like for him to act as if he knows what he wants. But what you're wanting is what you want him to be as opposed to accepting who he is. Suppose you're right. <laughs> 
true love doesn't have a label and it means we accept people for who they are. We can't date people in this aspirational way. Like if he only grew a set and if he would only pick up the phone and if he would only take charge and if he would only decide to live where he wants to live as opposed to what job is paying him a little bit more. If only, if only, if only, and pretty soon, by the time you're done playing your if only game, you literally have a completely different person in your hands. Right. If only they were dollar. Yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. There's some things that we can't change about ourselves, right? And the fact that he's 30 or up tells me that this is kind of who he is. He'll grow a little bit more, but I don't love the fact that you want him to grow so much in this way because it puts you in a position of lack. It puts you in a position of constantly like saying, come on in, like jump in. The water's warm. Try this out. Try out life. Or that girl's wrong for you. What are you doing? I've told you for a year that you are wasting your time. Then you are literally going to water down chemistry and romance because you truly are the friend. You're like the sister. Do you think you are in love with him, Michelle? I'm just, these are large words. Ah, you're scared. You're just as scared as he is. I'm not as scared as he is. I don't know. <laughs> People label that wrong. Like it's, that's not a bad thing to have trepidation around that. It's a big leap. And I think that's why it's so hard for people is everybody thinks they're going to go zero to 60. Like we're either friends or we're going to get married. Like there is a million steps in between then. And of course it's scary because that is a huge leap. Why not just go for there for the weekend or have him come back into Austin for a weekend, spend some time, call him up and say, do you want to spend some time in, in Austin in the next couple of weeks? Let's just hang out and get together and see each other. And if something happens, great. And if it doesn't, we'll know. Like, but if we're more intentional about it, maybe something sparks. And if it doesn't, I am always here for you. So I don't mean to put you down when I say scared because it's okay because I think you're scared because it's too big of a picture. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Michelle, during those 10 years and college days and your friendship, was there ever another moment? Yeah. I mean, there was, which we also, by the way, spoke about that night. There was one moment in college and then one moment in Austin. In college, we were just college kids drinking and hanging out on the couch. And there was just like a, a freeze moment where something about to happen or not. He was dating someone or I was, I don't remember. So we stopped. In Austin, we went to a concert and um, we used to do stuff like that together all the time. And we just decided to get real good and drunk for this concert. And then uh, we went and we were having a good time. And What concert was it? Do you want to ask? <laughs> <laughs> What's it like to go to a concert? <laughs> Concerts are so fun, Anna. Music, people, oh. It was a Green Day concert. I love this. We just got real drunk and went to this concert. And, um, but Michelle, when you talk about these moments, if you can look back, like what percentage were you the aggressor? Where are we at? Was it like 60% him? You could kind of feel 40% you were you 60. So I think that it was mutual. I mean, we were just standing there having a good time. And all of a sudden we looked at each other and our faces were way too close. And, and we just kind of froze for a couple seconds, like, you know, uh, and then nothing. And he literally spent the night in my apartment in my bed that night. And nothing. What do your friends think? Do you guys still have mutual friends from college? Yeah. Everybody asks us about this all the time. You know, everyone just kind of assumes that there's something going on or we've at least had like a drunken night here or there that something has happened. Um, and genuinely, none of that. 
But do they think you guys would be good together? Like, are they like, oh my God, you guys should totally be together. Why aren't you guys together already? Do you know what I mean? All I can really say is I've got my women friends and they're all, you know, they turn it into a romantic comedy, you know, so they just... Because that's what I want to turn it into. (laughs) I think every time they've had this, it's been with a little liquid courage. I want to know what it looks like in the sober light of day. If there's a kiss then, if there's a moment then, and then discussion after as to what this is. You get really lit up every time you talk about those moments with him, like an electric shock that goes up your spine, which is so cool. There's something there. I just don't think you have anything to lose because that train's already left the station. You guys had that makeout session. Yes, you were both a little drunk, but something already did happen. And if you have been friendly and friends this long, talking about the what if does not destroy that. It makes it a little awkward at best, but it doesn't actually change what already is. Mm -hmm. You guys are avoiding a lot. You both are. He avoids and also you avoid too. And for very good reason, it's risky. That's why we avoid things because we don't think we're going to be good at it because we don't believe we can have it. And we don't believe it's actually going to happen for us. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, think about all the things we avoid during the day. Like, why do we avoid the things we're supposed to do? It's like, we don't want to, or we don't see that there is an ROI on it. That's why, you know, everybody's so afraid of conversation as if the conversation is going to ruin the relationship. And it never does. It never does. It's the avoiding of the conversation that ruins the relationship. So April, is it something as simple as like, I can't stop thinking about, the last time I saw you, would you want to explore a romantic relationship with me? I mean, like, truly, what are the words? I mean, I just don't even know how I would approach that or... We want to write you a script. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I have to know what happens at the end of this story, Michelle. I know. And I just feel like it's only going to have an ending if I do something about it. So what I would do, Michelle, is I would sit down today and write down what do you love about him? What do you miss about him? What do you want to tell him that has nothing to do with, can we have a romantic relationship? Because I'm not 100% sure you're going to get the right answer. What I would rather you do is state how you feel. Therefore, you are being powerfully feminine with intention without driving the bus. I love this. So it's like, you know, I still think about that night together and I am curious about all of that you know, just say something beautiful. I'm missing you. I'm thinking about you. I even went to go call Anna Ferris to talk about it. That's how much is on my mind. Do you listen to this podcast? Please don't. (laughs) Yeah. So put that out there so that he knows that you are thinking about him and that he is top of mind. Then the ball is in his court to write you back or call you back and say, I'm so glad you said that. Can I come see you in Austin this next weekend or however it happens? Can you do that at least? I think so. But April, I am worried he won't respond to her right away. And I guess that's part of why it's impossible now. And I love the idea that if he's into you, that you guys can make up for lost time sooner rather than later. But I don't know. What if the rejection is so vague and blurry that she doesn't know where to go? But it won't be a rejection. Because whenever you tell somebody how you feel about them, you have to begin with losing your attachment to the outcome. And that's what makes it so pure and real. Oh, goodness. Well, you can't consider having a relationship with somebody unless you can have candid conversations. No, I just, I think that makes so much sense. 
I just never thought about it like that. It's terrifying. When I tell somebody, I love you, you are amazing. I do not expect anything back. It's my feeling. I get to have it. It's my present. It's like if I came over to your house and I dropped off a box of cookies, I don't need anything back other than your receiving of the gift. And that's what feelings are, right? They're not tied to anything. And that's where I'm suggesting that you go. It is scary, but I'm asking you to take the label off of it. You care about this guy, clearly. You are willing to push it under the rug and be his friend forever, which is beautiful. It's a beautiful sentiment to say, I accept you and embrace you, whether we're friends or lovers or potential future partners. It doesn't matter. You are a chosen person in my life. It is so pure and beautiful that if you take your eye off the target and you say that or send that, whatever you receive back, even if it's crickets, won't hurt you because all you did was send a gift. It just feels like the scariest of all options, though. I know, but that's who I am. Like, I'm always like, just like, let's dive in. Like, let's do this. I am 90% of the time that person as well. And I'm just... I worry that if he is the kind of person who is like a slightly passive player or needs kind of things in front of him, he'll like want to deal with it later or want to like digest it later. And then, April, do you think I'm wrong? Or does that just mean he's not the right guy for Michelle? Yeah, it just means he's not the right guy. At least we know the answer. But also remember, he's the guy that doesn't risk. He has to have affirmation before he makes a decision. He didn't go and move to that other state because he felt like it. He had somebody choosing him. So I guess what I'm trying to do is see what he's all about by giving him a little bit of confidence because I don't think you gave it to him that night or even the days after. I think you were doing like, no, it's fine. So I just want to see what he does when you fully embrace and choose him or compliment him or anything. I'm just curious to see what he does in that moment. Yeah. Basically, what I'm doing is I'm putting out the red carpet for him with my advice for you to see if he walks down it. You are, in a sense, in essence, choosing in that letter or in that phone call. Let's do it right now, Michelle. (laughs) Girl. (laughs) I'm impulsive. I'm not that impulsive. By the way, Michelle, I I have a lot of male friends. And I have a friend that's going through a rough time right now. And every day we call each other and I'm a married woman. And every day when we call each other and I support him with advice, we start and end our calls with, I love you. I'm grateful for you. Thank you. I love you. I love you back. That doesn't mean, oh, we're friends. So we can't say that you do love each other. You guys are soulmates. You are safe in your communication with him. You just don't know it yet. You're both a little bit like scaredy cat about it. You're kind of coming forward. You're taking it back. I'm not asking you to say you're in love with him. I'm asking you to say, I love you. I care about you. I miss you. Just even if it's just a note of like, I'm missing you today, missing you. See what happens when you're vulnerable. Vulnerability is just the expression of how you feel in its highest form. That's all that it is. It's not like opening up your candy in the lobby. It's just honesty. Care about you. I miss you. But wait, April, if I were writing this text, I would probably say something at the end of like, hope you're well or whatever, like something that would not be a conversation starter, that would be an ender. Like thinking about you, hope you're well. <laughs> you know, you I'm know. not sitting here waiting for you to respond. Just, yeah. You just do you. Just in love with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that the precise phrasing, in order to get the outcome that we want, like what exactly should she write? 
you know, I could tell you exactly what to write if I knew exactly what you wanted. (laughs) If you want to continue the friendship and put this aside because he's not pursuing and maybe it was just a drunken night and it was fun. You guys definitely have attraction. You definitely have chemistry. And I mean emotional chemistry, by the way. If you want to keep that friendship, it is yours forever. You can just keep on moving and do exactly what you're doing right now. But I just keep thinking that there's a reason why we're all here today. And so I want to help you with that. And I want to help you achieve your dreams and goals. Correct me if I'm wrong. To me, it feels like the goal is an amazing relationship with this guy, like the person that you you are so happy to wake up to every morning. In second place would be a deep friendship. And worrying about achieving number one, you may lose number two. Is that in the arena? Absolutely. I do think that the potential of what him and I could be if we work together romantically, it feels big to me. Like it's something that I can't really not address. Once it kind of clicked in in my brain, it just felt right. And it just made sense. And it just made me happy. We have a great time together, you know, and we just understand each other on a whole other level than anybody else that we both know. There's your letter. (laughs) I just wrote that down, by the way. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. You just said it yourself. So your letter is basically what you just told us. It makes sense. It makes me happy to think about it. So when you're feeling this and you're expressing this to us, why can't that be a text, an email, a phone call? Every time I think about this, it makes sense. We have so much history. And when I think about that night, it makes me happy. Mm -hmm. All you're doing is sharing your inner monologue that's already going on. You're just being more honest. Everything else is a lie because you just said something that was so bold and so beautiful. Makes sense. We have history. He makes me happy. The the concept of us together, it's the calmest you've been during this entire conversation. (laughs) It's the clearest you've been. It's scary to say, you know, I just, if this is something that were to happen, you know, him and I romantically, I couldn't see that not ending in a long, long future of whatever, but. Hey, sometimes love's in your backyard. You didn't even know it, you know? (laughs) Right. And that's kind of how it felt when all of this happened, you know, when he started saying the things that he said. You know, I had a guy that hired me years ago and he flew me to Vegas to see where he was living and introduced me to his businesses. And he said, I'm going to bring you to the offices. And then the woman that basically runs my operations and who happens to be my best friend is going to meet up with you. You guys are going to go to lunch and then I'll join mid-lunch. And she's introduced to me to a million girls. She's been there for the he said, she said of every relationship I've ever been in. So I'm going to have you meet her to give you perspective. Now, I didn't need to meet her, but hey, he was the boss. He's the client. We're going to do it. Did you know that we went to lunch and at lunch, she was sounding exactly like Michelle. She was speaking about her best friend and boss, by the way, in such a way that I looked at her and I said, do you like him romantically? Oh, no, April. No, 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 no. He's a friend. He's been a friend a long time. I'm not what he's looking for. And we're friends. But everything in her voice and body was going, oh, my God, these two are just oblivious to the fact that they're supposed to be together. So cut to the lunch, he shows up and I felt like I wasn't even in the room anymore because those two were just electricity together. We parted ways after lunch and when he drove me back to the airport, he said, so how was lunch? Did she give you a good idea of who I should be with? And I said, she certainly did. 
And he said, well, who? And I said, well, funny enough, she was actually at the restaurant we were at. What? She was? There was nobody at the restaurant. Yeah, she was really close to us. In fact, super close to our table. Well, how close to our table? Well, so close that she was sitting at our table. (laughs) And he stopped the car and he looked at me and he went, are you kidding me? And I said, no, that's your girl. Like, that's the woman you're supposed to be with. You just don't know it yet. So what I advised them to do was to start slowly getting out of buddy mode. She had to leave the job. So she had to take some risks. And I'm just going to say it's years later. They're married. They have a couple of kids. That's amazing. April. I'm just saying. And they had a 10-year friendship. So they had to completely change course to make this new thing happen. They didn't wreck anything because what was already being built all of those years was in preparation for what they have now. So April, if let's say like in a week, you guys have a relationship, but is there any like advice, assuming that the text or the conversation goes well, what in terms of separating the friendship blockade? I guess my advice is why do we have to choose right now? All I'm saying is there is a little communication there is a weekend where it's just a little bit more intentional than what you've done previous. So instead of it being, I'm going to use alcohol at four o'clock in the morning to say what I really feel, let's do it in the light of day with a little bit more intention. And if you guys get together and there's still avoidance on that weekend, then you know, and then you can forever put this thing to bed because it's not there or he's too scared. And if he's too scared, that is an answer. Because avoidant boyfriend is avoidant fiance, is avoidant husband, is an avoidant reluctant ex-husband. It's brutal. <laughs> Damn. I like to splash my eyes. <laughs> You're right. The answer will be there. The answer will be there, but you got to get together with a little bit more intentionality this time. But you don't have to say, like, let's get together and have a romantic relationship. That's way too much right now. It's, do you want to spend a weekend? Let's get together. I'm still curious and I miss you and I'm thinking about you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea. What do you think? Um, Yeah. I I think that that makes a whole lot more sense just for us. Just too much. You're right. For sure. It's too much. I just want to see what he does when you show vulnerability and access to who you are on an emotional level. And then the advice I would give you after that might be completely different, but I'm just not sure yet that you have shown that Right. No, I definitely have. <laughs> right. So he may be sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm going to strike out with her. That's why he's the first thing he said after he kissed you was what? Did I just screw up? When somebody says, did I just screw up? Did I go too far? What they're asking us to do is care for them in that moment and make it okay and make it more than okay. And that didn't happen. It was, no, it's fine, which is different than, of course, it's okay. I've always wanted you to do that, but we're friends. And so it's weird. Do you see the difference in tone? Yep, sure do. Uh, yeah, for some reason I had it in my head that he needed to be the person to, you know, initiate this conversation, but I could... It's not his style. I know. And he's so safe with you on the other level. I wish our listeners could have seen April kind of give a meh shrug. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, God, I was so sure I was right about that. I thought it made total sense, you know. According to April's shrug, it doesn't seem to matter too much. Yeah. <laughs> And I think she's right. (laughs) I hear women do this all day long, right? Which is, well, I want him to do this and I want him to make the plans and I want him, he better step up. But what are we doing to inspire the step up? 
inspire it, which is very feminine and super powerful, by the way. And then you know, once you've done that kind of inspired action, all of your answers are there. And then you can literally move on and move forward as a friend or something else without having so much question in your brain that's really getting in the way. It's just causing friction in your head. It's too much effort and thought and will keep you from meeting somebody else if he's not the one. So you don't want to burn time. I know. And that's kind of where this all stems from. You know, we're getting older and I don't really want to waste any more time getting there. I think I'm getting better at communicating in a more honest way, but I wish I had learned that ability earlier. April, will you give Michelle a time frame for when she should do this? Yeah, no time like the present. It's spring. Uh, there's something really beautiful about this time of year. I don't know what it is, but I think it's just biological. Everybody wants to connect right now. So I say this week, it's quick, it's fast. It's not something that you want to put a lot of time into. How about today? I think today, because I feel like if you don't do it, like in the next few hours, I'm worried that you'll overanalyze it and you'll push it because it is a relatively small leap. You know what I mean? It is opening the door in a gentle way. So I think that you should do it today. Just remember that the note or the text or the email that we're asking you to write is just your words. It makes sense. It makes me happy. You were so calm and confident when you were saying that. If you write that into a note, I promise you it will land well because when it's authentic and what you really feel, it always lands well. The stuff that doesn't land well is the stuff that we've manipulated and packaged because it reads and feels disingenuous. We just don't know why, but that was your truth. So if it's your truth and he's a potential life partner, maybe, why wouldn't he want to hear your truth? He won't be offended by it. He's going to be flattered. What if you wrote, Michelle, I would really love to see you. I've been thinking about you. What do you think about that, April? Yeah, you know, I miss you thinking about you. It would be great for us to get together. That's it. And then see what he does. If he is skirting it, avoiding it, doesn't pick up the ball, then you owe it to yourself to move on. Yeah. Uh Love takes courage. And it's not for the meek and the weak. It is for the people who are brave and courageous enough to be honest and real. That's the reward. The relationship is the reward for the transparency. And that's all we're asking you to do. And I think that heartbreak makes us better people. (laughs) 100%. Well, then I am the best. Hey, Michelle, thank you so much. No, thank you guys. This was so great. All right, bye. Bye. April, thank you so much. Oh, this has been amazing to be with you, Anna, as always. 